Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today's episode, we are going to talk all about prairie grouse. That means the greater prairie chicken, the lesser prairie chicken, its extinct relatives, as well as the ubiquitous sharp-tailed grouse that you can find almost anywhere there are no trees. My guest today is Marilyn Vetter. Marilyn Vetter is a lifelong resident of the Upper Great Plains, and she is a board member not only of the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, but also of Pheasants Forever. She is a longtime bird hunter, and she has a lot of insight to lend to us to learn all about these crazy birds of the Great Plains. I'd like to thank Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring this podcast, and away we go. Marilyn Vetter, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am super stoked to have you on uh, to talk about prairie chickens and the not-so-elusive sharp-tailed grouse. Welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited about it as well. So for people who don't know who, who you are, um, I, I know you as a member of the board for Presence Forever, uh, but I think you wear any number of other hats, and, and you've got, a, you've got a, a long history with hunting, don't you? I do. I, I suppose I, my history is common to the birds that we're going to talk about today. I, I grew up a, a creature of the prairie and the plains as well. I, I spent my childhood in, in North Dakota growing up on a cattle ranch here. And I, interestingly enough, I wasn't a hunter as a child. My brothers were, it's probably because of the generation I'm from. I was not included in their explorations, uh, but I grew up watching these birds fly around our pastures, and and I guess I didn't treat them maybe with as much reverence as I do now, but I, uh, I did grow up in the plains and have experiences at acquired through my last 25, 30 years of hunting that I actually took up with my husband. So when I met my husband, he was an avid hunter and um, was pretty adamant that he uh, drug me along. And I would say drug me along because in the beginning days, it was truly uh, dragging me along because we didn't have dogs then. And the experience was much less exciting and rewarding at that time without dogs. But it's harder um, to hunt these birds without a dogs. I've done it. I've done it without dogs several times, but it's you're right. It's it makes things a lot different. And for me, probably because I grew up a kid that was a huge dog enthusiast. Uh, being on a cattle ranch, we always had dogs, and so for me, even if I didn't hit a bird, just being out with my dogs uh, that has absolutely changed the the experience for me. So that, I guess, leads me into, you know, the next part of, of my journey of why we probably ended up actually having this conversation was as we got into dogs ourselves and I got involved in the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, um, both as just a lay person that learned, used the organization to learn how to train my own dog, to be getting active in their publication, getting on their board, and have been on their board now for the last 20 years, um, actually in my last month of service on that board. And then because of that connection, also got connected to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and have been on that board for about five years and have learned so much being involved with Pheasants and Quail Forever about so many different things. And I think people tend to think that the organization is limited to, to pheasant and quail. And of course they are because uh, they would think that because of the name. But when I, when I got involved with the organization to see how the biologists that are scattered throughout the country really help 
farmers and habitat enthusiasts with all kinds of bird populations, including the prairie birds we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm a I'm a life member of quail forever because I live in Northern California and we don't we don't really have pheasants to the, to the degree that the Midwest does, but we have lots and lots of quail. The the habitat things that that these groups do, and then there's a prairie grouse uh, North American Grouse Partnership, and and then the rough grouse people, and and you know the the critter clubs in general. They are all about creating a, a a habitat for not just the specific bird, but everything that that lives in that particular environment. And and I think I definitely want to spend some time talking about conservation with these prairie grouse, because there's a very different story between chickens and sharpies. The the chicken population is not terrible compared to where it was a couple 20, 30 years ago. Sharpies are doing okay, but the the limit of prairie uh, prairie chicken habitat is much much smaller than where sharp-tailed grouse live, and and there's there's some reasons for that. Yeah, you are right. There's another link between a bird you just talked about, quail, and and these prairie birds, and they both love fire ah, and the, the ramifications of fire. So, an, another interesting connection. So you run um so you run German short hairs. I do. And uh, that's your kennel's the Sharpshooter's Kennel, isn't it? That is correct. Yeah. So, how did you get into, you know, doing? Actually, I mean, everybody who hunts these grouse, more or less, if you live out there, you've got dogs. But there's a big difference between running running dogs and owning your own kennel. There is, and you know, so for me, it is still, uh, I, I dare say it's a hobby, uh, a hobby that probably takes every second of my spare time outside of my real job. And it is my husband's full-time job, of course, but uh, there is a big difference. And I think the connection really, though, in the end was uh, we started out in German short hairs and got our first dog out of the paper for a hundred dollars and she still holds a very, very special place in my heart. And she was a fantastic dog. She really was. She would, I would tell you that she was a great meat dog, but what we saw through the time of, of going from a dog that was a hundred dollars to dogs that came from established breeders was, um, our other dogs tended to be either healthier. They tended to have particularly much better structure so that they could last in the field all day, all day long. And when you talk about prairie birds uh, in particular, you really need dogs that can last. And one of the things, and, and people that know me will, will probably roll their eyes because uh, my husband and I talk about this all the time, is that if you have dogs with bad feet, you are not going to have a good prairie dog. And uh, one of the things that we noticed on our very first dog was that she didn't have great feet. She wasn't bred to have good tight toes. She didn't stand high on her toes. So when you run around the prairies, there's cactus, there's sandburrs, and just the sheer movement of going up and down hills that are covered in very tough cover and are built of sand will wear their pads off. So if they don't have good structure in their feet, they'll be lame in a couple of hours. And we, you know, we're blessed to have enough dogs that we rotate dogs. And I would never propose that someone run one dog 10 hours a day for five days on end. But she would be spent in an hour and a half, two hours, because her feet would be so beat up. And 
we'd have to rest her. So yes, we always, we wore boots on her, but even so it just was different. So can I interrupt for a second and say just how evil sandbirds are? I discovered them for the first time a couple weeks ago in Oklahoma. Yeah. Oh my God. They are evil. And then we get like stick tights. Oh, we always call them stick tights. They're so much worse than goat heads. (laughs) They are. They are really awful. And you know, that's probably the other fence uh that we're deer hunting in oklahoma and i crawled underneath a barbed wire fence not really looking uh-oh like hundreds of them yeah. <laughs> and the the, the the points are like i don't know what they're made of it's like it's like genuine wood and it goes right deep as oh it's the worst i can't even imagine walking around barefoot on them so be, that's one of the other reasons we went with short hairs is that you know because we spend most of our time hunting out on the prairies at least they're easier to get. I mean, they're pretty easy to get out of a, of a German short hair as opposed to a griffin or even some of the German wire hairs that have a softer or longer coat or, God forbid, a retriever. I, You know, it was just it was non-negotiable. I was like, if we're going to have dogs, it has to be a low maintenance dog because I don't want to have to groom and and cut and all that kind of stuff, you know. So every now and then we'll have a client's dog with and. I'll never forget. We had a poodle pointer in that was. Uh, and they're kind of foofy, aren't they? Yeah, they can be. Some of them have great coats, more wiry, and then there's that's others true. That there's are... one in there's one in Arizona I hunt with a slick coated poodle pointer named Shiloh, and she's an amazing quail dog down there. That's great. And we had one then. It was a little fur ball, mm. and <laughs> we we got into a field that had was just full of beggars lace in South Dakota, and we sent a picture to the owner and said. So we either have to like sedate her and try to get this out or we can shave her because it was, it was awful. And so for me, those are the kind of telltale signs of that, why we decided that we really wanted to put an emphasis in good breeding so that dogs have good coats, good feet, good structure, everything about it. Uh, You know, obviously you want to breed for nose and, and desire and talent, but in German short hairs, uh, you know, most dogs have a pretty decent, you can get by with a lot of them from a talent perspective if you aren't a diehard hunter and if you don't care about water. And because we are duck and goose hunters, we also wanted to breed dogs that were enthusiastic, as much as, as enthusiastic about the water as they are about the field. Thus the versatile hunting dog. Thus the versatile dog. It's interesting. I, I, you know, I don't own a dog and I grew up with a, with an Airedale Terrier as a pet, but I did not, you know, I've never owned a hunting dog and I travel so much. So I feel it would be unfair to the dog and, you know, owning, owning gun dogs is a way of life more than, you know, they're much more than just a tool and, you know, you can't just take them off the shelf when you need them. So I've never really felt it justified to own one. And I learned things like what you were just talking about. I would never have known about the feet or the, I, I could have guessed about the short coat because Shiloh, the poodle pointer, she's slick haired and she does really well in Choya and cactus down in Arizona. And I, and, but then I know, I, I mean, I've hunted, I've hunted sharp tail grouse with a, with a much more of a kind of a, I don't know what you longer coated foofy kind of poodle pointer as well. My friend Jim Millencipher, who we did a, we did a show on on uh, ptarmigan and Himalayan snowcock. He he runs a dogs that are much more fluffy, I guess you would you would call it. Well, you might be the smartest guy in the lot because you know lots of people that have hunting dogs, and you don't have to 
don't have to worry about all the rest of it. So it's, uh, it's the thing about boats too. It's right. It's <laughs> you don't want to own a boat. You want to know somebody who owns a boat. Which is why I no longer own a boat. See. <laughs> well, tell me. Let's let's go take a step back for a second and. When do you first remember actually having a close encounter with either the a prairie chicken or a sharp-tailed grouse? Doesn't he, doesn't necessarily have to be hunting. Oh, probably when I was I, not probably when I was a little kid. So when I was really small, we had dairy cattle, and we we were of the grade B type. Um, for anybody that knows anything about dairy farming, so our our cattle were free ranged. And which meant that at, you know, twice a day, my mom would do the early shift. She'd walk out and round up the cattle and bring them back to the the barn for milking. And sometimes in the afternoon, my sister and I would walk out and round them up and bring them back for milking. And invariably, uh, we would find, you know, a covey of grouse. And it was always really shocking, both literally and figuratively, when you'd encounter them, because particularly if they're not hunted, they tend to hold super tight and and they'll, they'll they'll scare the bejesus out of you when they get up right in front of you or right behind you and those are my first experiences of like what are these pesky birds doing with the cattle and even now when i'm hunting in the the fort pier area it's a, it's fascinating to me how much i see the birds travel with the cattle it's true it's true i was doing some research on this and both birds are uh, are they're not obligates of bison, but they are they're linked with the bison for a couple of reasons. One, um, prairie chickens are tall grass prairie birds, and they they're specific to that style of the Great Plains. You know, there's short grass and tall grass prairie, and but it's not like they love too much of the tall grass prairie because it's it it hides other predators, but when the bison would run through and eat everything and create you know, big footprints in mud and that would create little havens for, for green grass and for bugs and they would get the, the, the grass shorter and then the, the big giant bison droppings which get bugs in them and, and then all of these gallinaceous birds, like all of the chicken-like birds that, that we're going to talk about in this whole podcast, let alone, the, let alone this episode. They all love their bugs, and I suspect, and you know, there's been some science um, to this, is that without cattle or bison, the the both kinds of these prairie birds do not do as well. I would agree with you, and in fact, when we were out in Fort Pier a couple of months ago, uh, we had a chance to to talk to one of the local biologists, and it was it was a wonderful education for me because he talked about how he he as his job working with the local ranchers is they determine because the local ranchers rent that that, those grasslands those public lands they determine which fields or which pastures will be grazed early middle and late season and and then they rotate that and how he he gave us a, a great tutorial on well so just go watch. And if you watch, you'll see like if you graze it early season, then they're, those those pastures are pretty good late season. That That's where you're going to find your big adult birds. But if they graze them late in the year, 
there's probably not going to be much there, but you can bet that they might be pretty strong contenders the next year because there'll be birds and that they're going to graze it, you know, late in the season. So uh, it was really fascinating to see how he works with the local ranchers to make sure that they don't overgraze. You know, a couple of years ago when we were there, there had been a terrible drought and they had to open all of the pastures to grazing. And quite honestly, it was like walking around in a soccer field mm. and it was it was just amazing. And the only, you had to walk literally five miles to get super deep into the cover where maybe other people hadn't gone to actually find a bird. Where this year, because it was so wet out in the Dakotas, and there was a lot more cover. And it was, it was interesting to see how the birds were much more dispersed. That's interesting. I mean, so that sounds, yeah, it, it, it sounds like they're controlling now for that succession where the birds follow the, the, the great herds of bison. And, you know, now we've got cattle. And I, I was looking at some other things about habitat. So we're going to talk about some, some habitat issues in terms of how to find these birds and, and hunt them in a minute. But both species hate trees. Like yes. the, and the, as long, the sage grouse hate trees especially, and they're kind of known for that because trees, uh, you know, a few trees are okay for, for a windbreak. But in general, trees are where hawks live and the hawks yes. are their biggest enemy. Cedar is kind of the main culprit for for all the prairie grouse. Nobody, you know, all the juniper in the west and cedar where you are, um, you know, if you if you are listening to this and you've got land and and you want to make it better for prairie grouse, get rid of most of your cedars. Yes, a hundred percent. Which is why the native too. They, you, you you bet. And wherever you're going to see raptors. That's where you want to try to get rid of as much as you can in, in your culture. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago when we were out on the prairies, we ran into a farmer and a, a rancher, actually. And he stopped us and asked us how things were going. And he asked where we were from. And we said we were, well, we currently live in Wisconsin. And he said, oh, you have a lot of trees there. So what do you think about this place out here? He said, with without any of the trees. And we said, well, you know, we love it because we come out here to go hunting for a prairie grouse. And he said, well, you know, trees just obstruct the view. <laughs> <laughs> but Native Americans did call these birds fire grouse. And, you know, so bison act, I guess, like a, a, uh, a walking version of fire. And that when bison come through a field, they eat everything. And which is why they're really good for prairies. And our cattle tend to be a little more selective. They look for the lush green grass and sometimes they leave the invasive invasive species, which can be even more problematic to to Mm. pastures where, you know, bison almost act like a fire. A fire comes through and they wipes everything out, particularly cedars. It's how you keep cedars at bay. So, uh, you know, fire is really important part for for these birds to have sustainable habitat. So I'm familiar with the fire suppression problems that we've had over the last you know, really hundred years in the West where the theory was that you, you don't let any fires happen. And now we get these horrible ladder fires that can burn millions of acres. So I, it's my impression that it's been a similar philosophy in the great plains where they didn't want any fires at all so that you've, you've got a lot of sort of gunk in the, in the places that are not actually farms. And, and I don't get the sense that they, that they do any controlled burns there, or if they do, maybe they're just starting them. Do you know anything about this? No, you are correct. Unfortunately for the birds anyway, that there hasn't been, 
And obviously I understand, you know, I grew up on a cattle ranch and it's important for the, the two systems to work together. But also growing up on a cattle ranch, I saw how it, uncontrolled sage completely took over our pastures. And, you know, people were taught, from, particularly early on, my father was a Depression era child. And so, you know, they feared fire and, and they were taught to avoid it at all costs. And, you know, they used all ki- a number of herbicides to try to control the sage and it never really worked. Mm. And they, it just never really worked. And one wonders sometimes if, if fire wouldn't have been a better suppressant for that sage, because, you know, while he wanted to have grass for his pastures, it really took over. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe with time and further study, uh, but I do, I I see it now when we go out to the prairies or even when we're just popping around the pastures here in North Dakota, if without some level of either grazing or fire, you you see all of those uh, bushes and shrubby species like any kind of conifer come in and they really, they take over pretty quickly. That's interesting. I mean, I bet, I know Quail Forever in the South is doing controlled burns all over the place. And it would be interesting to, to, to see if any of the other organizations are going to get into controlled burns and well, maybe in places like the Fort Pure Grasslands or or if it's – and this is actually kind of another issue that we, we should deal with in terms of where do you get to these birds? Prairie grass live on private ground, and so it's private ranchers and private landowners in general who have much of the conservation burden and, and opportunity in, in that sense. Like I, I remember I hunted um, – I don't even remember what the town was near, but it's in, it is in south central western North Dakota, and it was an amazing series of, of ranches and, and private ground, and, and it was right on the other side of the river, and the, there was chickens everywhere, but it was it was managed for that because the private landowner he did guided hunts, and so the uh, if you wanted to get on chickens, he he had been actively managing for that, and. If you are listening to this and you wanted to go and hunt prairie chickens, how would you suggest someone go about it? So uh, we spend most of our time now on the grasslands in South Dakota, which, which are all obviously public. And we do some of it back here in North Dakota on private land. It, it's a little harder than it used to be because – because of the lack of CRP um, and that program, which is not necessarily great for grouse, I, don't get me wrong, but that that has has uh, because of that lack of sign up, a lot of land has been tilled that wasn't necessarily tilled previously, and because farming techniques have changed a lot, and because with no seed tilling and all you know without I mean no till seeding, a lot of land that didn't normally get planted, let's say 40 years ago, can be can be tilled and planted today because it, it actually can sustain a crop. It doesn't have to be plowed and exposed to the to erosion and all kinds of other things. So there isn't necessarily as much cover as there used to be. When I first started hunting 30 years ago, you know, we went around the hills in the Butte, North Dakota area or in the Wing area of North Dakota. Um, it's funny you said the town you can't remember the, the name of because most of those little towns are, you know, 20, 30, 40, 100 people. And they're hard to remember the towns until you've been there. But, you know, there were pockets that were very hilly and they were pasture. And quite honestly, you know, those folks are the, the salt of the earth 
uh, you know, you stop in yards and you ask if you can hunt. And, and nine times out of 10, as long as it's not deer season, they're, they're pretty great about it. When it comes to deer season, they want to have that land undisturbed. And they might even say a week before deer season, you know, we don't want anybody walking in there to, to scare all the bucks out. But, uh, you know, those are obviously what I tell you is, is I go to the local coffee shop in the morning in any one of those little towns. And that's where you're going to run into ranchers that um, off season are maybe not out. Uh, making hay or hauling hay and you might be able to catch them in the morning to see if there's a good place in the area or even on their place. But generally, if you can act like a respectful person and be knowledgeable about the fact that, hey, I'm a, I'll make sure I close every gate behind me, whether there's cattle in there or not, and thank them for what they do, most of the time they're they're pretty cool about it. And, you know, if you don't necessarily want to try that, you know, I'd say strap on your hiking boots and go to the, the grasslands out in Fort Pier. That's it gets a lot of pressure. So you're going to see birds pretty dispersed and you might have to put on more miles. But it, it's a humbling experience. and It'll certainly teach you a lot. What about the public walk in program? Uh, this is it's kind of legendary in both of the Dakotas as far as. Yeah, it's private ground, but it's part of the program where you can walk in. If you some places make you sign in, and some places, I think in North Dakota that you, if unless it's posted, you can you can hunt it. That's correct. The plots land, and in fact, so my husband and I both grew up around the far, uh, Harvey, North Dakota area, and um, actually where I'm sitting right now is on the family farm, and um, we're surrounded by a lot of either plots land or waterfall production areas, and and those areas you can. You're right. If they're not posted because they are owned by private citizens, if they're not posted, you can can definitely use that cover. What I have found now, some of that is great, particularly if it's it's hayland. So there's a particular stretch uh, about three miles from where I'm sitting that is 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 every year they make hay out of it. And that's a great place for us to find grouse. A lot of the other plots land is is it might have a little more brushiness to the edges. It it's, tends to be more pheasant country. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I've I this was actually doing a little research. I learned that um, I wondered why you don't see pheasants and grouse together more than than you do. And part of it, obviously, they like different different habitat. But one of the things I read was that. Pheasants will steal a nest from a grouse. I read this and too. This is you, awesome. Isn't it strange? So then then the chicks hatch first. The pheasant chicks hatch first. And the grouse thinks that, and the grouse typically, not abandons, but they don't spend a lot of time with their chicks. And those chicks are pretty independent very quickly. And when they see that the chicks have hatched, they leave the nest and the grouse eggs have are then for all intents and purposes abandoned and and then they don't hatch yep i you know it's crazy there's another famous game bird that does that it's the redhead the redheaded duck is a uh and is it there's a classic uh ornithologist term for that it's like nest surrogate or whatever and and the cuckoo is the most famous one um but yeah, it's a thing. Like there's a whole bunch of birds that do that do that and i had just just like you i just learned that the disco chickens stealing our grouse. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you bring in a non-native bird. They have well, to do with what they can. 
that's <laughs> first that's true but you, you know and we can flip it over in that sense that both sharpies and prairie chickens uh can snow nest where pheasants cannot so Correct. i've seen it i know you've seen it where it's get a big old blizzard somewhere in the great plains and it's just cold it's just super cold like cold like canadian cold and pheasants need a lot of cover to not die in that because they're from you know they're from china they're not from a super cold part of the world and both of our prairie grouse along with huns by the way huns are the only non-native uh game bird that we brought here that can also just dip under the snow and make a little burrow and yeah it's still cold but it's 32 under the snow not negative 40. Yeah, they find a way to thermoregulate in it. And and they it's fascinating, you know, a cold December or early January, last couple of days of the season, you can be driving around and, and you'll see sharp tails sitting in a tree. And you know, they'll they'll be covered up, but they're they're roosting on a and they're trying to soak up the sun or you know, on those those sunny mornings where, you know, pheasants they they typically don't necessarily do that uh, and I you can tell that they haven't necessarily fully adapted you know when you have uh, terrible snowstorms and, and you know what do pheasants do they they go to that heavy heavy cover and I'll give you a great example it happened here about six weeks ago when North Dakota at least this little pocket of North Dakota got slammed to 30 inches of snow in the middle of October and what happened is the pheasants went to that tall cover and a lot of them didn't survive it because the cattails weren't dry enough yet. And you can, if you drive around in the sloughs right now, a lot of them are just flat. Hmm. And uh, what we had a lot of locals tell us that when they went out early season and walked around, they found a lot of dead birds because they, I'm sure, suffocated. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I'm, we're going to do a whole episode about uh, pheasants with with some pheasants forever guys because there's a whole like it's a thing like it's a it's a huge deal a to to chase them especially in South Dakota but it's also this strange management of a of a a bird that you're right hasn't fully adapted I mean it, it, actually I'll tell you where pheasants would be amazing and if we changed our farming practice where they'd all be California yeah they'd do great there. Yeah, because we'll, you're you're never going to get a 30 inch snow in the Central Valley of California. <laughs> if you do, we we have other things that we need to be talking about. <laughs> Run, flee, Armageddon. <laughs> you know, one of the other things that you asked about is how you find these birds. Um, one of the things, and this year was really evident. So the first time we went out to the grasslands, we jumped out of the truck, the very first field, and the first thing that happened was, you know hundreds of, of grasshoppers popped up and we looked at each other and like, Oh, this is going to rock. This is going to be amazing. And it, it was incredible. There were, there were a lot of birds in those areas where we found, as you said, insects and early season, they like, you know, early after nesting, they like a very different bird, but boy, when it comes September, October, that is, that what's puts their body fat on for the winter is grasshoppers. I and that too. I and their crops were just slammed with them. So that's the, the one thing I always tell people is if you're lucky enough to shoot one, the first thing I always tell you is open the crop. And that'll tell you where what they're feeding on. And generally, that bird's not alone in its, in its idea of what's good food, every one of them around him. So when you look for other fields that look 
contiguous or at least similar to that, you're going to find what, what they're eating. When we went back six weeks later, they'd already had a frost. It, you know, things had changed dramatically. And we, when we went to those same areas, there were hardly any birds around, but there was still a lot of standing crop and particularly sunflowers hadn't been taken off yet. So when we started looking for the grasslands that were bordering sunflower fields, that was where a, we found larger coveys and they were bordering those, those crops that hadn't been harvested yet. Sun or not, sunflowers are a great one. Um, and I had, don't think I have ever actually killed a sharp-tailed grouse in the Great Plains where there were not rose hips. Yes, absolutely. And buffalo mm-hmm. berries are another one too, but they do love ro- rose hips. Which is cool because, you know, I the first time I ever came, I got to tell you about the first time I ever hunted sharpies. So the first time I ever hunted sharp-tailed grouse, uh, I got the opportunity to do it with my friend Chris Niskanen, who is a Minnesotan who got me into hunting many years ago. We got the opportunity to hunt a ranch in eastern North Dakota that had never been broken by the plow, ever. Wow. It was an amazing place to be. It was, And just like you said, it was rolling. It was very diverse uh, flora tons of mushrooms tons of rose hips you see i'm a forager so i'm always looking for the edible things and but there just there's just no monocultural at all and it was i mean it was just chip shot hunting i mean you had to walk but the one thing i found them all the time is you know i never we never found them in the flats i i started to name them the other side of the rise grouse because (laughs) you would walk up this rise and you sure there's probably going to be some grouse on the other side of the top of that rise so like you you hold yourself and catch your breath before you get to that top because as soon as your head breaks the plane of the top those birds are going to fly and you got to whack them as they're flying away every single time every time they would just be on the other side and i think what happens is they're on the top when you're climbing up and they hear something but they don't necessarily know it's you and then they're like i'm not so sure about this so they kind of inch away and inch away and inch away and when they see the the big hairless ape with the bang stick, they go, oh, my God, and fly away. And and then you get your, your chance to cut at them. But it was it was ridiculous, Marilyn. It, is, I mean, it was ridiculous. It's so it was funny like, that you say that. It ex- describes exactly. <laughs> so we were out uh, we were out just a few weeks ago in South Carolina. It was the exact same thing. And it was like, you know, we, we were laughing about that. You, you have to save your sprinting for the last 30 yards up the hill because you got to get up there as quick as you can because as soon as they see you, they're going to, they're going to take off. Oh, and you know, I, I was talking to another North Dakota named um, Tyler Webster about Hungarian partridge. And one of the strategies you do for Huns is you can, you can see where they flush and then you can go chase them. I don't think I've ever been able to reacquire a covey of sharp-tailed grouse. No, no, I haven't either. They, the only very like sometimes the very first weekend if you get into a young hatch you might be able to break them up a little bit there or you might have a couple of stragglers that don't break cover with the rest of the flock but you're right you can pretend that you're going to chase them down all day long that doesn't happen you might get a couple of singles but you won't get the whole covey it's nuts i mean i like the first time I ever flushed a flock, which was very early in my hunting career, which is, you know, 
18 years ago now because I, I started hunting as an adult too. We, Niski and I flushed these sharpies and it, and it was like up oh, gone up oh, up oh, up oh, they're in North Dakota now and it's like <laughs> sorry just you're never gonna see them again they are now out of your life and they laugh at you as they go they do they do it's like you know where the chickens are quieter they are they are de- they are a little bit more deceiving I think sharp tail are easier to Actually, when I think about sometimes when we've taken novices out, one of the the things that's the hardest for people to distinguish is a a hen pheasant. If you aren't a super experienced hunter, you don't need you don't think about look at the tail and look Mm -hmm. at the shape of the tail and the length. And and I always say, you know, if they're laughing at you as they go, it's a safe shot. Uh, You know, you look for the white feet on sharp tail. uh, But chickens can be a little harder. They're they're smarter. They're they're quieter. They're much quieter, uh, but you can reacquire them. I have reacquired chickens. I've never yeah. reacquired Sharpies. Have you I'm, ever pass shot chickens? I have not. I have not. So it's it's a thing. Um, chickens are way more habitual than, than Sharpies are. And so if you have an area that has a lot of prairie chickens, especially a little farther south, they will – do their thing during the day, and then they, they, they're they like turkeys in a sense where they, there's a spot that they all want to sort of meet up and, and spend the night. And so quite often they will fly over a spot to do that. And you'll see, unlike most grouse, you'll see them flying around, which is pretty unusual because they're walking birds. And so you can set up, you know, against this fence line or in some corn and wait for these guys to, to fly over, you know, right before dusk and you can get into them in that, in that way. And I, I've done it not terribly successfully, but the day after I tried it on this cornfield in North Dakota, the guys who did it, they all limited out. Fascinating. I did not know that. I yeah. will have to look for a place where I can do that. That would be fun. It'd be, it's almost like past shooting ducks. It is exactly like past shooting ducks, except they're a lot slower. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm less successful at pass shooting on ducks. Oh, I live, you know, I, I hunt public refuges in California. So um, whenever I have the opportunity to hunt fancy clubs, you know, where the members are all used to feet down in the decoys and we'll come back from a from a duck hunt and, you know, Holly and I will be absolutely loaded down with like ducks and geese and, you know, who knows, like snipe, you know, you name it. It's like everything was there and we just we, we managed to kill it because we're good pass shooters <laughs> and, and they're just not, I tend to, I find the people at the fancy clubs um, are not as good at a 50 yard streaking, streaking duck. Yeah. Well, because they're, they tend to be shooting put and take birds that get up, you know, 20 feet in front of them and they fly straight away. Well, no, that was, that's with pheasants, but with ducks, they're used to like the birds feet down in the decoys and they won't, then they'll shoot them. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. And take a couple of decoys with him at the same time. <laughs> oh, I've seen that. That's I saw a guy absolutely mangle a, like a hundred dollar full body flocked goose decoy. It was like <laughs> nice. You're buying lunch, dude. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'd like to take a moment to say that Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts, hats, and other gear. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. 
Be sure to check out the new line of Hunter Angler Gardener Cook Apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any Hunter Angler Gardener Cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. So let's talk about gear for a second. It's my impression that other than, you know, I, I wear a pair of Filson uh, chaps, which I like a lot, um, and, you know, a jacket and water for your dog and a light gun. I, I, I shoot a, a 20 gauge over and under that weighs only about five and a half pounds. Uh, I call her Tinkerbell. Then that's about all you need for this. This is kind of a cool low, low equipment hunt in my in, in my experience. So the other thing that's nice about it is because you can, for us that are dog owners, you can see your dogs. You don't have to wear bells on them. Um, you don't have to wear beeper collars on them, which is probably why they are my favorite bird to hunt because it's quiet. The only thing that I would add to that for dog owners is I, I think dog boots are a must. Um, it's just so that you have you have your dogs for the you know five to seven days that you're out there. You want to make sure that you keep their feet pretty good. Um, we, because we are dog owners, I, we carry a first aid kit with our dogs uh, on us all the time. Porcupines, um, endless porcupines. porcupines. Yes, yes. That, that's definitely one of them. I think the other thing is depending on where you hunt, there are, um, particularly early season or early to middle season, there's, there's snakes. And so, uh, we, uh, through, this was actually a, a kind of a tough season out out, out in the prairies in, in Fort Pierre. There was a there was a lot of snakes around this year, and not that we saw a lot of them, but we heard a lot of stories about dogs getting getting struck. So for the first time, we did vaccinate our dogs, which we know is not um, it's not a sure thing, but it increases your odds to to get them to the vet in time, and and hopefully increases their survivability. But as we were leaving the vet one day when we think our dog was probably got a, a glancing snow uh, a shot from a snake. As we were leaving the clinic, somebody was bringing a dog in in his arms, and that dog unfortunately did not make it. So, uh, you know, for anybody that is hunting prairie grouse anywhere that there are snakes present, I always recommend um, now, I recommend that you should vaccinate your dogs ahead of time if you can. Like I said, it's not a sure thing, but it greatly increases their chances of survival. But, yeah, good hiking boots. And they have great, great traction. And, um, I, you know, I, I think the Filsons are probably at least a little bit better for snake proofing you as a human, too. And and the other key thing for people that have dogs and actually just for yourself is avoid prairie dog towns. Do not hunt anywhere near them because that's where snakes live. Interesting. I guess it makes sense because they like to eat prairie dogs. Yes, and we want to we want them to live there and eat as many prairie dogs as possible because they're they're hard on cattle, they're hard on land, they're hard on humans with the holes that they create and they really destroy a ton of property. I got uh, a great great prairie dog story. So, I'm in eastern Montana near Miles City. I'm it's like the second year I ever hunted and <laughs> my friend Tim Huber decided that he wanted to shoot this the world's largest mule deer doe five miles from the truck <laughs> smart going <laughs> i didn't know any better right so so he shoots this the world's largest mule deer doe it's like a 200 pound mule deer doe it's huge i mean live weight 
So I, again, remember I'm brand new hunter. So Tim says, yeah, all right, now we got to drag it out. I'm like drag it out. I'm like That seems like a long way to drag a deer. He's like, nope, we're going to drag it out. I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay. And <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those deals where, you know, you, you tie ropes around your wrist and through the, the Achilles tendons of the deer so that you, cause you, there's no human can have a grip for that long right. with that much weight. So we're, we're doing this sort of, you know, Batan death march back to the truck <laughs> and we get through a prairie dog town. And so Tim told me that the, the ranch owner was like, yeah, you can shoot as many prairie dogs as you want. I'm like, well, why would anybody want to shoot a prairie dog? And I, I learned because <laughs> we're dragging this dead deer through this prairie dog town and the prairie dogs are like, like constantly constantly yelling at us for i mean it took us like a good 20 minutes to get through this prairie dog town so at one point (laughs) i'm I'm not proud to admit it but at one point i stopped dragging the deer racked a shell and just started blazing away (laughs) (laughs) it had to feel very rewarding like it really did i might have killed one and then i stopped and i realized it was this was not a good idea and then we just just put our heads down and all them yelling at us the whole way and there's like no fur on the deer when we got it back and it was it was Definitely not, not a finest hour that's for sure in fact you are right every cattle rancher will say shoot as many as you can and and primarily for those two reasons it it destroys their pastures and it causes cattle to fall in holes and break their legs or their horses when they're out rounding up cattle. So uh, they are really destructive little critters. And in fact, um, there are many opportunities. If it's a 95 degree day, early season, that's a perfect opportunity to stop hunting from noon to four and, you know, start plinking around with, if you have a, a long barrel gun to, you know, plink around with those prairie dogs. So that's what a, a, actually there's a fair number of people that they go out there just for that to just shoot with long barrel guns to, and they're great target practice for them. I've, I've heard about that too. They do that with ground squirrels out here in the West. Interesting. The weirdest thing about ground squirrels, and you, I don't know if the prairie dogs do this. If you shoot one ground squirrel, his brother Louie will come up and start eating him. Like, I never liked you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They are uh, non-discriminate about. I, I don't think they have a very good emotional tie to each other. They're, they're the same way. <laughs> I was horrified. I'm like, oh my god, he just ate Louis. You're dead. Your food. <laughs> um. So, have you ever chased any of the other? So, mostly we're talking about the common sharp-tail grouse and the greater prairie chicken, but they're. There are other chickens. There's there's a, the Atwater's prairie chicken, which is a has a remnant population in Texas, and I don't believe I don't believe anybody alive has been able to hunt the Atwaters. Um, there was a fourth called a heath hen, which is an eastern prairie chicken, and the heath hen um, is the reason why the greater and lesser prairie chicken were so heavily uh, really market hunted in the 1800s and early 1900s is because when the colonists arrived in on the east coast in the 1600s there was a prairie chicken there called a heath hen which uh was basically looked more or less like a lesser prairie chicken and it would be in every meadow and in grassy area east of the appalachians 
Well, the last one died in, I believe, 1932 in, on Nantucket Island of all places. So there was this bird that was in common consciousness as a, as a game bird and a food item. And so when American society kind of ate up and destroyed the habitat of the heath hen, and then after that, the Atwaters, then what was left was the lesser and the greater. So, I mean, I think we mentioned before we went on the air was there used to be millions and millions and millions of prairie chickens. And, and especially in places like Illinois, where there's a museum population of them now, um, there's, there's one like 2,000 acre experimental spot for them to live and they live there they're they're okay but it's not like they're going to get any extra habitat anytime soon and and the last place in america that you could hunt lessers was kansas and they closed that in 2014 alas before i had a chance to hunt it so i will never probably get a chance to hunt a lesser and in for sharp-tailed grouse there are lots and lots and lots of different sharp-tailed grouse there's many many subspecies and i've hunted one other one which is the colombian sharp-tailed grouse in um it's in kind of western colorado of all places and it's pretty difficult sharpie to chase but there's different subspecies all the way up to the yukon and i don't i i'm wondering if you've ever chased any of these more unusual subvariants of what we're talking about i haven't i i think i've been spoiled by having access to and maybe just get into a rut, and, and I haven't. I have not hunted any of the other grouse. I think what we need to do is plan a trip to Alberta, because Alberta has another subspecies of sharp-tailed grouse that its its feathers are a little different from the ones that you find in the Dakotas and in Kansas and Nebraska. And, uh, and I have friends in Alberta, so we should do that. I love that idea, because I also have a, a boatload of cousins in Calgary. Yeah, there you go. I think that sounds like a perfect trip. Calgary, Dallas of the North. <laughs> yes, of the far north. Uh, well, I mean, not that far north. My, most of my friends are in Edmonton, and they're like, Calgary, it's so hot down there. Well, my father grew up and uh, was born in Saskatchewan. So they uh, they migrated from Saskatchewan to Calgary. I guess they decided they wanted a little more culture. Well, I mean, it's an actual city. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure there is. I mean, how big is, is even is Regina or Moose Jaw? Those are the two big towns in Saskatchewan. I don't think either of them have more than 100,000 people in them. I, yeah, I would bet they're not even. I really don't know. I, it's been a long time since I was I was there that, you know, that was exactly the area where my father was born was in that, you know, Regina, Moose Jaw area and where most of my cousins lived in their early years till they moved to Alberta. But, yeah, I, it looks very, very strikingly like North Dakota that you don't see big population centers. Yeah, it's true. And well, Manitoba is kind of like that outside of Winnipeg. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that the, the, the hunting culture is really not as strong just north of the border in Canada. I, you know, I have a lot of friends that have hunted sharp tail in Saskatchewan for most of their lives. And they say when they go up there, there's the only other hunters they encounter are Americans. It's pretty true. I mean, I know a bunch of hunters in Alberta, and that's about it. But I've I've duck hunted in Manitoba, and again, it's mostly Americans. And then I we were on this duck hunt in St. Ambrose, and I'm like, oh man, that looks like a really good spot to hunt rough grouse. And the guy was like, you mean chickens? I'm like, yeah. 
you, you, you <laughs> knock yourself out. Yeah, that's exactly. It was like, you want to hunt them? I'm like, absolutely I do. And man, so have you ever hunted rough grouse in the West? I have not. I've only done it in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Well, see, you've hunted real rough grouse, like actual game bird rough grouse, which is, I, I love it to death. It's one of my favorite things to do. However, if you ever get yourself into rough grouse territory, apparently in Manitoba and also in kind of the Rockies area, they're, I don't know, they're somehow developmentally disabled. They're just, they're just not smart birds. Perfect for me. They're, <laughs> and they're just not smart birds. They're just, it's, and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, well I got to eat. So they're not <laughs> quite as dim as spruce grouse, but they're close. Spruce grouse are pretty dim. Yes, they are. Or birds. <laughs> Thankfully that they live in an area that it's it's hard for, for any lazy person to get to. So th- that's probably why they aren't extinct. Well, and, and we've had very, very strict bag limits on them just to be nice to them for forever, too. <laughs> yes, it makes sense that we take care of the, the, need, the needy ones. How would you describe the difference in personalities between those two, the two birds, the Sharpies versus chickens? Well, that's an interesting question. I find the, the chickens to be, I'd say, almost a little smarter sometimes because they, uh, they'll they let you sometimes walk right past them. They're, I, maybe they're more courageous. They'll, uh, they'll, let, they'll hold tight, where sharp tails will always, always break free of the cover. They know you're coming, and they won't take the chance that you might walk right by them. And so, you know, obviously having dogs it helps a lot because if if your dogs are, you know, generally anywhere in the area, they're going to smell them. But we had a couple of happen this year where the dog would had gone around the, the bottom side of the hill, come up the top, come up from the other side, which they learned to do because they know the birds are going to break. And um, it was fascinating because it was actually chickens that we were working and not sharp tail. And so the bird, the dogs are thinking, well, these are sharp tail. They're going to flush, right? Well, what happened is the chickens held because I was the one that had walked past them, not the dogs. And they got up behind us. Ah. Did you, did you manage the, the, the pirouette shot? Well, I had too many, I, you know, I would have had to take the chance of probably shooting another human, so I did not. Ah, uh, yeah, but it was a chicken. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I suppose who the human is, but no, I did not manage that. But I was, I was fascinated to see how much tighter they held. It was really, it was, it was a really interesting season. Um, and I, I also, I think uh, sharp tails tend to be more social. I guess is what I would call them, and that they tend to have bigger coveys, particularly at the end of the season. It's amazing how big their cubbies can get. I have noticed that too. I've noticed also that um, snipe are very similar to chickens in the sense that there can be a bunch of them in a given area, but they're not in a blob like um, like huns or quail are. So they could be two here, one there, four there, and they may they may all get up within a couple seconds of each other, but they're not tight in a ball as much as I see sharpies are. Really, very much so. I I saw that more this year than ever. Maybe because we saw a healthier population of chickens, where you know sharp tail when they get up, they do. They all fly together. It's almost like they think they're safety in numbers. And where chickens, it's probably in the end smarter because 
they'll be scattered everywhere and it's, it's almost distracting because, and you only usually get one shot because they're in such vastly different directions. Yes. Yeah. Which is, it's an interesting one because as a Western quail hunter, I'm trained to not necessarily shoot the, the covey rise because Western quail don't all rise at once. And so your trick is, I mean, a really good quail hunter, which I'm not quite there yet, will go boom, boom and kill two on the, on the covey rise, quick reload your side by side or over and under or, or whatever, whatever it is that you're using, reload it super fast because chances are you're going to get one or two or even three chances at more birds that are stragglers. Exactly. And I, you know, that was, um, when we hunted quail in Texas one time that, it was exactly what I found out too is, you know, they're not all gone and and actually the smart ones are still there. I think usually the lead rooster or drake or cock or whatever the hell you want to call it, uh, the lead male is, uh, is, is one of the last to leave. I would agree. Hey everyone, I'd like to take some time to thank Filson, the original Alaska Outfitter, for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I am rarely out chasing upland birds without my Filson jacket and tin cloth chaps. You should know that Filson was founded in Seattle, Washington in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating the best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Right now is Filson's winter sale, and you can save at least 35% on unfailing goods, including classic bags, outerwear, boots, and more. This sale only happens twice a year, so be sure to check it out before the end of January. Let's switch to, okay, we've got some birds in hand. How do you like to work with them in the kitchen? So I have two different methods that I are my, my go-to. So I think of sharp tail or, or prairie grouse in general as a little bit like cooking venison. They respond best to being cooked either in high heat, and I like them either rare or medium rare. And I like them on the grill a lot. Um, with not a lot of adulteration to them, or I like to slow roast them in the oven. Those are really kind of my my methods. Maybe I'm also a creature of habit. It was it was interesting that you were talking about when you uh, were hunting those birds in eastern North Dakota on that native land, and you said that you found them with a lot of mushrooms. And when I think about grouse particularly the prairie grouse, um, because they're such a dark meat. They don't, thankfully they don't have that livery flavor and texture that you find in some birds. But I, I think that the best thing that you can serve with them is two things. It's either mushrooms, which really enhances that, that really earthy flavor, or you go to the kind of the, uh, the alternative route, which is like apples and apple cider vinegar or sweet potatoes or those kinds of more, that sweet savory kind of, of combination. And I keep it pretty simple. I guess I think about, I, I, I cook grouse kind of like how they are. I, I'm, I, I keep it pretty simple. Hmm. How about plucking? Do you ever pluck your grouse? Chickens more so than sharp tail, just because there's just not a lot on a leg on a sharp tail grouse. Um, and chickens obviously are bigger birds. And, but their, their skin is pretty fragile, tears really quickly. It's not, it doesn't, doesn't it's not like a duck or a goose right. where they have this really tough skin that you can yeah it, it's in fact they're they're super easy to 
to flay out if you want to just take the breast um, because the skin tears pretty quickly. We don't do that on this podcast. No, no, I know <laughs> that. Um, but, um, you know, chickens, I think, are actually, so I grew up on a, on, a, on a farm where we, you know, we we clean 400 chickens a year. So I, boy, I, I know how to pluck a bird. Chickens actually pluck like a chicken, like a standard old chicken in my mind. They're pretty easy to pluck. Uh, the first time I ever plucked a Sharpie was on that that ranch, the, the unbroken by the plow ranch. And, um, I, that was before I learned that the best time to pick any chicken like bird is two to three days after it was killed. When a bird is no longer warm, but it's still that same day or the morning after the feathers stick way, way tighter than yes. they will stick. If you've chilled the bird for two, three days, and this is especially true with the Sharpies. Especially true of Sharpies. I, and not, not that I can say that I, I've necessarily followed that technique, but I always let my birds sit all day long for sure till they till they cool down. You know, the worst thing you could do is try to do it on a warm bird. Well, I don't know. I mean, if it's a freshly killed bird, it actually comes off quite easily, but it's an hour later. You know, once that bird goes into rigor is your problem. Yeah, right. I, I guess I haven't necessarily done one right afterwards. Um I suppose that makes sense when you think about, you know, that's what we did on the farm with chickens is you mm -hmm. got their head off and you, <laughs> you did it right then. So they were pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, so the, the only time I've ever done it is if we're the last bird of the day and, and I'll, and I'll be honest, I mean, I mostly just did it to see how it would be, you know, to, to, as an experiment. Good to know. I'll have to check it out. I suppose you could do it right away, especially since they're not that big. They don't take that long to do. No, here's a fun, weird, bizarre phenomenon that I have noticed and other people I've talked to have noticed this as well. If you pick a prairie chicken and roast it, the meat is pink. If you take the breast meat off a prairie chicken and cook it, the meat is dark red. I have no idea why that happens. You are right. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I don't know why that is either. I, I There must be some kind of a protective or else a fat layer that's between that that skin and that that tissue i don't know but you are right i have noticed the same thing it's so weird it's it's got to be chemical it has to be something to do with the bones and you know because the it's it has to be the contact with the bone that while it's being cooked that does that because a roast prairie chicken and i'll, I'll put a picture and the recipe for the way i do prairie chickens on the on the show notes for this it's unbelievable i mean it's one of the reasons why prairie chickens and not sharptail grouse were the dominant market bird 100 some odd years ago is because you could roast a prairie chicken and it's not a chicken chicken but it's closer to a chicken chicken than it than a sharpie would be in the sense yes. that it's kind of pink pink colored and not and not dark red and have you noticed that the the legs and the wings on sharpies are uh, and chickens are light meat yes Super weird. It's su they're, they're the opposite of everything else you encounter. And I don't, I, I'd imagine that's because they don't really, I don't know. I think it's really, really odd. They are the opposite of what you find in every other species. Yep. So each grouse are the same way. And the only other bird I'm aware of that is like that is a woodcock. I didn't know that about woodcock. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure someone could call and, and tell us what that the rationale is for that, that knows more about it than we do. So here's what I've been able to suss out. Um, all of these birds do not run. They're not runners. So pheasants are runners. 
The yes. biggest issue with shooting a pheasant is making sure it's actually dead because otherwise you, you go on a wild chicken chase. Whereas pretty much if you think poorly about sharp-tailed grouse, they die. Yes. <laughs> they are fragile that way. And roughies are the same way. And so they're not, you know, it's not to say that I've never had runners, but it's pretty rare to have a runner prairie grouse when you've hit it. Yeah. They hunker down. Mm-hmm. Do you use, um, just a real side note on, uh, before we go back to cooking for a bit, do you use, I mean, I tend to shoot them with, with either lead sixes or I actually like bismuth fives too. Hmm, I haven't used bismuth, but I've actually started thinking about, you know, so we, we, we always have used lead. And in fact, we just this week had a conversation about, is that the right thing to do anymore? When you think about, um, because I was reading an article about Huns, actually, and and that they they tend because they are such foragers, they tend the chicks can um, end up you know picking up pieces of of old spent lead, and uh, you know obviously that's we know that the stories about that. So, but we have always just used notoriously used lead. I, I haven't used bismuth on them. Um, I've used bismuth it kills them dead pretty good. Um, steel shot. I would, you know, if you can find Kent Fast Steel in fours or sixes, that's another good non-toxic round that, that works really well, especially with later season birds. Yeah, you, you do need a bigger round late season anyway, just because, A, they're, they're a bigger bird. They're hardier. They take a little more. And the last thing you want to do is wound them. Right. I mean, and they all, um, late season birds are always flushing, like, it's a snapshot almost because they tend to be so wary. It's, they're flushing at, at your range. They definitely get educated in a hurry. For sure. So one other thing I like about the thing I like about both of these birds is that they're they're challenging birds in the kitchen in the sense that you think because it's a chicken like bird, it's gonna be a white meat chicken like bird. And with the exception of the whole roasted prairie chicken, they're just not. They're you know, you you likened it to venison. I liken them to doves, actually. Like a sharp tailed grouse is like a really, really big dove in the sense that it's it's a red meat bird that you nailed it. You don't wanna you don't wanna overcook it. And if you do overcook it, really becomes a vehicle for whatever sauce or salsa or gravy that you that you end up putting with it. It's just kinda like a duck as well, where I'm fortunate enough to live in a place where ducks winter, so they get very, very fat. They don't tend to be as fat where you live. Um, no early end of the migration. So yeah, you're right. Um, I, in fact, I use a lot of the recipes that I've found over the years for ducks on grouse. Yeah. It's not a, it's, it's pretty good, especially if you've got like a skinless sharp tail grouse breast, you really need to cook it. You know, I, I mean, if I shot a lot of them, I, ne- I tend to, I tend to not shoot a lot of sharp tail grouse cause it's just not where I live. So they become this special thing for me. But if I were to shoot a number of them, I would treat them a lot like like out of cheddar, like skirt steak or flank steak. And you take a, a, a skinless breast and salt it or marinate it and keep it cold, cold, cold. And you might even want to pound it out so it's even thickness. And then slap that on an incredibly hot, either flat top or grill, just until you get a char mark. And, and the trick to keeping it cold will prevent it from overcooking by the time you get a good char mark. It's the opposite of what you would do with a beef steak. That's exactly what I do. Yep. I make my grill is super hot and I, you know, I, and people will be like, wow, that, that seems really rare. 
So it can be, um, but it also, when I think about, you know, I'm the only one that's handled it. I'm not worried about anything else being in it. And, uh, you know, that's, you are right. And then it's, it is, it almost melts. And I haven't pounded it, but that's a great idea, actually, because that would, that would help that, that plumpest part of, of the breast to respond. And so you'd, you wouldn't have such a, a difference in, in the texture. And then, you know, if you wait too long, the edges are too done and the center isn't done enough. But that's exactly how I like to prepare them the best. And then I throw them on a salad, throw them with a side. And I'd, I'm, I'm really not big into sauces on particularly on grouse. So I, you know, I, I enjoy the, the taste, but I, that is, I, my favorite way is on the grill. Yeah, it's not a not a bad. Do you ever make uh, broth or stock with the carcasses? I haven't really too much, um, but if I have, it's it's to make. I, I use it then as a complement for for like a wild rice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting broth or stock um, because they're like all the other grouse. They're a strong bird. They're not like a, like a, a a pheasant stock is effectively like a chicken stock. These stocks are not. They're very much, yeah, this is a prairie grouse stock. It's going to have that very distinct flavor that you either like or you don't. And it's one of those interesting things that as hunters, we can we can relate to it and we can liken it to other things, but it would be very hard to describe to a non-hunter. It's just it's sort of funky, beefy more than chickeny. Yeah. I In fact, I, I always think of it wherever I would need a beef broth is where I would use it. It's definitely not something you want to surprise your neighbor with if they are not a hunter and you invite them over for dinner. Here, here's my sage grouse or <laughs> prairie chicken consomme. <laughs> I, I've learned that lesson a couple of times to not not surprise people. <laughs> they, they they know better when they come to my house, though. It's like chances are they're just they're never going to see. I mean, in fact, I I haven't bought meat or fish for the house more than a handful of times since 2005. So they know they're going to get something wild at my place. They better just show up for happy hour if they don't want to eat. Yeah, they all eat. Because, you know, the cool thing is, like, because I do what I do, it's it's an it actually is really interesting because it becomes kind of a trust fall situation where if someone's worried about X or Y meat or fish or whatever, they know that if I'm cooking it and I'm going to feed it to them, I'm going to present it in a very accessible and and tasty way that if they were ever going to eat, sharp-tailed grouse or whatever or you know you name it chances are i'm going to be the guy who's going to cook it where you're going to want to try it if they're ever going to that would be the time to do it that is for sure and in fact you had a recipe that came across this week in your in your newsletter that i wanted to try with it actually goose tacos and i thought that might be a really great use too Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it, it. They're a little smaller than a big goose. So in in that case, if you did that method, you'd want to cook it basically like what we just talked about, which is to say, pound it just so it's even thickness. So like the thin end of the breast is the same width as the thick end of the breast. And cold, hot, fast. I would I think on the plancha, you know, like on a flat top or a kamal or just a big old frying pan, you know. Um, I like the flat tops cause it's easier to, to flip when you don't have the high sides and then just chop it. You know, you, you know, you'll notice there's a grain to a, to a bird breast just the way there is with a steak. It's not as evident, but it's there. And then that gets the, the thing that people it just drives me batty sometimes. Like people will, will take pictures of their tacos or will serve me tacos. And it's like big old pieces of meat. 
And no, <laughs> no, that's not how you do it. Because when you fold a taco and you take that first bite out of the taco, if you can't, if your teeth can't, can, can't snap right through that meat instantaneously, you're just, you're going to pull out that piece of meat with your first bite of the taco. And then the rest of your taco has no meat. I completely agree. You want to experience everything that's inside that taco in every bite. And I don't want my first bite to be all the meat and the rest just to be pico or avocado. <laughs> right. So chop. Here's your here's your lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Chop your taco meat. <laughs> We've gone astray, but you are. We agree on that completely. Well, all right, Marilyn. We have uh, we have run a pretty good time. This has been a it's been a little over an hour. And before we go, I would you know how would people find you on this uh, magical internet? series of tubes of ours uh your your kennel or social media or or you, you let me know where people should uh look for you so i boy uh the the kennel is is a, a place to find me if you're looking for dogs um as far as i'm pretty active on linkedin um and i'm pretty active on twitter so i'm pretty easy to find there and what is your handle on twitter uh, it's just vetter underscore Marilyn. It's pretty simple. I wasn't creative about this one. It was one of those, I need to get on Twitter and oh shoot, I need a handle. <laughs> Mine's the same. Mine is Hank underscore Shaw. So <laughs> I tried to go that way. I couldn't somebody had already had taken my name. So I had to go the reverse, but uh, those are probably the, the best. And of course I'm pretty active on Facebook and then anything that's affiliated with, with PFQF or NAVDA, you can, you will find anybody that can track me down. And, um, you know, that's, I didn't want this to go without talking about Navda just a little bit. And, and you have been gracious enough to lend your talents to our magazine and give us a recipe to publish every month. And I want to tell you that that is such a hit. You can't even imagine. I mean, it has, it, it, people talk about it and wait for it and then compare the notes about the recipes on a regular basis. So I really wanted to thank you for that. It's, it's really added a lot of robustness and character to the magazine so i just want to let you know we really appreciate that well i'm really glad because I, you guys approached me and i'm like yeah sure why not and then i had no idea the kind of response that i would, I would get and it's been really it's been surprisingly and uh, surprisingly nice you know it's like whoa okay awesome well i think what's it's kind of funny is that you know people do get into a rut about the game that they make and they they tend to do it the same way or they don't use it. It's amazing how many people they go hunting and then they say, well, Hey, do you want my birds? Like my family doesn't like my birds. Well, maybe because you haven't really thought about different ways to prepare it or they treat it like they treat chicken or anything else. And so I think that's probably why people have had such a great experience with it is that they feel like they have a level of confidence about in a safe way that somebody's already tried out of how to prepare their game in a way that not only will others enjoy more, but they will too. And that's why I do what I do. I mean, I, all my recipes are tested and, and I mean, we talked a little bit before about how rare it is for me to actually kill prairie chickens or, or sharp-tailed grouse because they don't live in that part of the world. And so every single one of them is a, is a very special thing for me to use. So I think about it and I, and I kind of, obsess over those recipes so that they're they're airtight so that if there's other people like me who maybe make one trip a year to that part of the world and and you have three chickens or or three sharp-tailed grouse these are 
really cool recipes that taste great where you won't ruin the result of that very special hunt. Right. Or not want to go again. I, I, I can't tell you how many people say, I really like hunting the birds, but I don't like to eat them, so I don't go. Oh, yeah. I mean, at least they're smart enough and wise enough to not yeah. go. I know. I would love to not go and fill their freezer or, uh, or waste it. Uh, you know, don't open your freezer a year from now and see a bunch of freezer burned birds that you're going to toss in the garbage. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, before we go one side tip, Hey, everybody there has probably something freezer burned in your box freezer. It's <laughs> yes. really good to make broth or stock out of or soup because freezer burned things when they are simmered in a, in a, to make a broth and then you can pick the meat off. No one will notice the difference. Pro tip. I appreciate that. I will. You know, it's getting that time of the year where you have to make room for new stuff and hopefully make room for some uh, some venison soon. So I'll make sure that I, I put it aside for, for broth. There you go. Well, I spent a great hour. I really appreciate you coming on the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. And I hope your rest of your season is as good as the beginning of the season was. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and you can find me on social media at the Hunt, Gather, Cook forum on Facebook. It is a closed forum, so tell me in the questions that you have to ask to get into the forum that you heard about the group from this podcast, and I will let you in. I am also very active on Instagram, where I am also Hunt, Gather, Cook. You can find me there pretty much every day, posting cool stuff and good things to eat. As always, the core of what I do is hunter, angler, gardener, cook. It is huntgathercook.com, and you will find that it is the largest source of wild food recipes on the internet in any language. I hope to see you there at huntgathercook.com, at huntgathercook on Instagram, or in the Hunt Gather Cook group on Facebook. Until next week, talk to you later. This is Hank Shaw. Bye.